What's up, guys? Thank you for joining us for episode eight on the Naked Pit Podcast. In this episode, we catch up with world-renowned chef and five-time award-winning author Bridget Foliaki Davis. With so much information out there about what healthy eating really means, Bridget shares some really easy and practical advice. You can also find her delicious gluten-free, sugar-free and dairy-free recipes in her new book, Treat Yourself Healthy. Her talent and love for food has taken her from her hometown and humble beginnings in Otara, all over the world, working with some of the top chefs on the planet and cooking for the likes of Oprah and New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern. We hear about how she left school and home at the age of 14 to pursue her passion of becoming a chef, the hard lessons learned in those early years and how she has used that to drive her today. As a proud married woman, we talk about the positive and detrimental habits our Polynesian diets and relationships with food can have on our health. Bridget shares her incredible weight loss journey and the education she hopes to share to improve our understanding of gut health and its impact on our mental health. We hope you enjoy this episode. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Naked Blue Podcast, where we dive into the journeys of our guests, exploring their story, exploring their passions, their journey, and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Andrew Katoa, and joining me as always, co-host, Sam White. Mate, episode eight here. I don't know about you, but I'm really enjoying connecting with all of these people and seeing how they've gotten to where they are. And I know that's something we've been getting a lot of feedback about is little bits and pieces that our, our listeners are taking and putting that into their own story and journey. So how are you finding things so far? Yeah, bro. I, I guess from where we first started to now, I didn't realize it's like after, it wasn't until after Lucha's one, I um, sort of thought, man, this is like a blueprint for, I guess, someone to leave their story behind to listen to for, I guess, his kids, grandkids. Um, and then having kids of our own, just sort of like, you know, if we were to kick the bucket tomorrow, touch what we don't, but uh, um <laughs> You know, they could hear our voice or see what we're trying to do um, long while we're in the ground or whatever. So, you know, we, we didn't get to sort of meet our grandfathers, but I just thought, man, it would have been cool to you know be able to hear some stories from them. Just like, you know, you could hear it secondhand from someone. But for me, that's where it sort of changed a bit to be able to do this. And yeah, learning from every single uh, one that we've been doing and um, pump for our next guest. Absolutely. And yeah, I guess leaving that legacy behind. I know speaking to Luch after the episode, he's had family and friends for years and years who've never heard his story. And it wasn't until he came on the show that he was able to share that and they were able to learn that deeper side of him. But for today's guest, speaking of documenting journeys, it's hers is one that is actually quite well documented. <laughs> um, I know that looking and we do a bit of research when we do get our guests on. Just Google it, Bridget Fuliaki Davis, and you'll see articles about her and, and her life and I think the hardest part for me was just seeing all the awesome food and not being able to smell it I feel like I could smell it through the screen to be honest um, but I was just hungry every time I was <laughs> I was doing I dived into the research but I guess a little bit about who she is and what she's about she grew up in Otara New Zealand left school at the age of 14 became a chef at the age of 20 and owned her own business at the age of 22 uh, she's an award-winning chef and having cooked for the likes of Oprah and Jacinda Ardern and also a five-time award-winning World Gorman Cookbook winner. She's also done a TEDx talk for Sydney about social media and the influence that has on food and also does plenty of mentorship for startups. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us on the episode today. Kia ora, gentlemen. It is an absolute <laughs> pleasure to be here and congratulations on your success. It sounds like you guys are doing some pretty awesome things. 
Yeah, well, you know, having a look at your stuff, me and Sam were texting last night. We were like, bro, she's she's cooked for Oprah. Like, what's she doing with us? (laughs) (laughs) We always had that little, you know, inferiority complex that (laughs) we're not Not worthy of having you on our show, but we're very grateful for getting you on. Oh, pleasure. Um, Like we do with all of our guests, just diving into your journey and, and where it all started. Share a little bit about yourself and how you ended up getting to where you are today. Well, as you said, I, I grew up in Otara, uh, Auckland, South Auckland, I should say, New Zealand. And, um, you know, growing up in, in Otara, and I was there in the 70s and the 80s. And I didn't know I was growing up in Otara. I was just growing up, you know. It wasn't until, like, I, I, grew, I was a bit older and I left the suburbs, so to speak, did I realise that Otara had this fairly, I want to say bad, but it, it was a, a, a reputation that I didn't associate with where I grew up. I was just having fun, man. I was a kid. You know, I was literally kicking the footy around. I was playing rugby with my brothers. I had three older brothers and an older sister, you know, the baby of the family. And I was just enjoying life. But it's not until you get a little bit older and your vision starts to change a little bit that you realize that, you know, perhaps we were poor. <laughs> perhaps, you know, growing up in this suburb that so many people were associating with it being full of crime and and, you know, full of people that could potentially do other people harm, did I begin to look at my suburb as anything but just the best place to live? So, you know, we were poor when I realized it. I was like, oh, what? I thought, what? You guys go on holiday? <laughs> What's a holiday? If we want a holiday, we turn on the hose, man. <laughs> That's the holiday happening. And it wasn't until I sort of stepped out of that, that, that bubble. And it was a beautiful bubble. And sure, it came with its, you know, with its issues, but I just thought everyone had those, those sort of issues. Yeah, well, we grew up in Western Sydney, so similar, around Blacktown, Layla Park, and I guess quite low socioeconomic area. And yeah, we probably didn't realise it either until you know, Sam travels to Japan. I move away as well up to Newcastle and you sort of experience things. And I feel like you have a sense of pride from where you've come from. And, 100%. And, I guess, the benefit of having that experience. As I mentioned, you left school at the age of 14. Yeah. That must have shown a lot of courage and maturity. Um, The opposite, bro. It was the total total opposite. It was the total opposite. I mean, especially to my dad, because my dad's traditional Māori. You know, my my dad's Māori. My mum's Pākehā, so New Zealand European. And um, my dad wanted me to go to university. And I knew, I knew since I was probably 14, uh, four years old you know and at the age of 14 I 100% knew what I wanted to do and I wanted to become a chef I wanted to work with food I can recall being this little kid you know going to sleep and I would have dreams about throwing pizza dough in the air and then catching it and twirling it on my finger and then throwing it into a into a pizza oven at four years old these were the things that that were you know that were just up they were they were in my mind, whether I was awake or whether I was asleep. So I always knew what I wanted to do. And I also realized at a very young age, and I was, don't get me wrong, I was really good at school. Like I was, I was the top of my class. I was nailing, I didn't have to study for exams. Everything came really natural. But what I realized was this traditional structure that I was expected to go through. And good on my dad for wanting me to go to university because he wanted more from his, his children, right? My sister was going to university. He wanted me to do the same. But I just knew, I was like, I can't learn to be a chef at university. Do they do cooking classes there? I don't think so. So I left school at 14 against the wishes of my, my family, the very strong wishes of my family, um, to work in a restaurant because that's what I wanted to do. And that's where I saw my path leading me. And I knew it was a very hands-on. 
uh, role that I required and I knew I need to learn on the job. And even at 14, I was like, if you want to be a chef, you have to work in a restaurant. So that's, that's why I left school. But it was not, it did not go down well, put it that way. How do you, how do you approach that conversation at 14 with your parents? You know, like, it, I you guess get kicked I mean, out. That's what happened. That's what yeah, happened. My dad was so disappointed in me and, and just could not, could not understand. And, and the reason why, when I think I'm like, I'm a mum now, you know, I've got three kids myself. Um, our oldest is about to turn 30. Um, so we, you know, we've got, we've got kids from 30 down to 17. And I think of my, all my children had more schooling than I did. Like, like, you know, like being in school, they've been in there longer than I have. And I look at, as a parent now, how would I react, right, to your 14-year-old, you know, apple of your eye coming to you and saying, I'm not, don't want to do school anymore. I actually want to work in the restaurant where everyone smokes and drinks and they're nuts and it's a crazy environment. You'll just go, I don't think so. <laughs> so um, my dad responded how any Māori dad in the 80s would respond, get out, like just get out. So I, I got out, I left. Yeah. So your dad being quite traditional, I guess, how important was your Maori culture to you growing up and, and how much of an everything. impact has that had on, on your profession? It was everything to me. So, you know, you know, when you're in a, um, um, a family where one side's, you know, one culture and one side's very opposite, you tend to lean. Well, we definitely leant and we leant towards my Māori side because my dad's family is humongous, as you can imagine. I mean, my one, one of my dad's sisters, his older sister, she has over 120 direct descendants just from her. So when I talk about how big my family is, even my husband, who's Tong, and just goes, man, you got a big family. It is like, it was everything. I grew up as a Māori. I did not grow up as a European um, I learned that later on in life. I've definitely begun to embrace my Scottish side, my Welsh side as well, my English side. But prior to that, I was Māori. And, you know, we learned on the marae. The first time I ever saw cooking on mass was walking into the marae and seeing my aunties and my uncles in full flight in this kitchen. And it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to be able to do that. I want to feed people on mass. And I want to be able to control, like, they were ballerinas, you know, walking around the kitchen and they were cutting down beasts and they were, you know, and they were dissecting fish. And I was just like, damn, that's what I want to do. So it was, it was probably when I think about growing up, I always thought I was special because I came from this culture that to me was everything. It was the most beautiful, like, example of what I'd ever seen when it comes to this community and how people connect with each other. So just going back to obviously when you when you had um, said that there's the door, where did you end up going? Like who, who ended up taking you in? And I guess, did you have those second thoughts? Was like, well, was this the best option to do? Or um, were you just like, nah, this is me. I've got my back up. He's just given me the opportunity to be able to just kick on. A bit of both, to be honest yeah. with you. You know, I'm 14, very, very strong-willed at 14 yeah. years old because I had this goal. I knew what I wanted to do. And everyone around me was telling me you can't do it. You're a female for a start. Females don't become chefs was kind of the rhetoric in the 80s. Um, and there was no, I didn't have a role model. Like I cannot tell you one single female chef that I knew of that I could go, no, I could just be like her. 
So in my mind, it was just like, I'm going to do it anyway. So um, I did definitely kick off. I went and stayed with my sister who was in staying in university housing. Like it was <laughs> dangerous. Oh. You know, I went into my first nightclub when I was 14 as well, you know, go figure. Yeah. It was a dangerous situation to be, but because I always had this, this goal and I always had, a, um, had something to move forward to, I didn't let the fact that I was suddenly free to do whatever I wanted and I had money in my pocket because I was working and I was earning really good money for a 14 year old I had you know had my own car when I was 15 that sort of idea but um you know I was I was really consistent in my behavior because I had this goal and I had this dream and I was going to make that dream happen no matter what what was put in front of me well something we do talk a lot about is high performance habits I mean for a 14 year old you're saying that you just stayed consistent. You knew you had to do these things to achieve your goal. At 14, what are you doing to become a chef? <laughs> well, the, one of the first things that you learn when you walk into a restaurant, have you guys, any of, have you, either of you two worked in a restaurant or in a hospital? Through uni, yeah, I've worked in a few pubs. So um, you know exactly what I'm talking about then because yeah. you've been in that environment. Is that the chefs are a bit of a motley crew because no one tends to see us. We're behind the scenes so we can get up to a bit of garbage, you know, a bit of rubbish that we can do. So, you know, the things that I was learning, I was learning, firstly, I was learning how to work really hard. So already I was pulling 16 hour shifts, um, you know, six to seven days a week because I was the cheapest person to employ. They just gave me all the hours. So I was learning from a very young age, the importance of putting yourself forward and making yourself available every single day. So I would go out with my sister at night and we were, we, were, we were cruising the bars in Auckland and, you know, <laughs> in the late 80s. <laughs> great, great scene from what I remember. I mean, I'm only 14. I don't remember much. Um, but then I'd be at work, you know, at 7 a.m. in the morning to start work because that's what is required. And I have that mentality even now, you know, I'm in my 40s now and I still know I'm turning up for work. If someone says it's work time, I'm there. So, you know, you're learning these types of habits from a very, very young age. And they are habits that stick with you for your entire life. So now when we look at our kids, you know, especially our younger two, so 16 and 19, oh, sorry, he turned 17 on Saturday. I shall not forget that. So 17 (laughs) and 19 is we're trying to instill the same behaviors in them is that your word is your oath, right? If you say you're going to do something, this is, you do it. You turn up and it doesn't matter how you're feeling, no matter what you did the night before, you show up and you do what is necessary to not just to, to help out that person or that business, but also to improve your skills on a daily basis. And I always had that mentality from such a young age. How do you achieve that or create that environment in your household when I guess your kids don't have to feel that, um, that struggle? Like, how do you have that now? That's such a great question. And it's something that Mahe and I talk about all the time. So I grew up in Otara. Mahe, my husband, grew up in Māngere. And we're talking the warring nations. Like, this is like like two countries going to war in terms of the suburbs in Auckland. And so, um, you know, we have this conversation all the time because we both, both grew up in suburbs that were less than, you know, ideal to everyone else. That how do we instill the values that we got from our suburbs or our lifestyles or our community where well, we had very, very little, we made the most of it. How do you instill that in your kids? So our kids now, they started working in the business that we have created as soon as they could literally know how to put the jug on and make a cup of tea. It was like, you know, you're going to have a job and you're going to do this. And I'm going to pay you a wage. I'm going to pay you some money dependent on the work that you're doing for me. So we got them to understand, you know, what it means to 
to struggle, you know, to have to get up early and do the tasks that were set for them. And some of them are quite physically demanding. Some of them are quite mentally demanding as well. Um, so that they could understand that, you know, this is not, we're not gonna gift you and life is not gonna gift you anything. If you want something, then you gotta be prepared to work for it and study for it and, you know, and be there to at the beginning of the day, when it first starts and right to the very last moment. I always think is that this is a chef and, and any chef or any cook who's watching this or anyone who's worked in hospital will understand that, you know, you will start in the morning and the first thing I used to do when I used to walk into my restaurant is turn on the lights because, you know, it's night, it's still, you know, five, four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning, you turn on the lights and then you set up. At the end of the night, might be midnight, you've been there for 16 to 18 hours, you're putting out the rubbish and the last thing you do before you leave is you turn off the lights. And it's the same with our children. You know, you've got to start at the beginning and you've got to finish at the end and you've got to complete everything in between as well. So we're trying as parents to instill <laughs> yeah. these values in our kids. You know, we're, we're parents ourselves and I guess um, we have these conversations a lot about, <clears throat> I guess, the fact that we do want to operate out of our own fears or pass our fears down to our, our kids, you know, and, and I see it in our culture a lot just because, you know, they grew up with, say, nothing, no toys or anything like that. And the first thing they do is just make sure their kids have toys, Nikes, everything like that. And I was like, yeah. for my, myself and my wife and even talking to AK here, it's like, man, we can't do that. Like it no. just, um, no. it just can't be that sort of, yeah, hand out, not up type of mentality. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Like, so because our children have been working within our, and we're, we're fortunate that we actually have a business that operates, whereas they're actually doing the jobs of people that we may have employed otherwise. It's not like we're creating a job for them, but they need to prove they can do the job. They need to prove that they are learning and they're constantly improving on the job as well. And if they do that, then they will get paid. And so our kids, like I've never bought any of our kids a phone, you know, because they have to buy their own phones. If you want to have a phone, you've got to have to earn the right to have that phone. You know, our son today, he was out mowing the lawns, but hot and me today. <laughs> he was not impressed, but he knows. Like, if he goes out there, I want those edges perfectly lined up. Everything's going to be <laughs> Oh, the chef mentality on the lawns as well. Heck yeah. <laughs> I used to have to, one of my jobs, one of my first jobs I ever had was mowing the lawns for my dad. And my dad was a stickler for like, he used to have one of those things that people use on the bowling greens, you know, to flatten the lawn. My yeah, dad yeah. was nuts when it came to the lawn. So as I was the youngest in the family, I was, the, you know, I was the youngest girl, yet I used to mow the lawns because I wanted the money. And my brothers were like, eh, I can't be bothered. I'm like, I'll do it, I'll do it, but it has to be perfect. So now we teach the same and we instill these same values in our children because, you know, they, they may not uh, understand the struggle like we did coming from where we came from, you know, but they can definitely understand that there is no handouts in life and you have to bring yourself up, rely on yourself and put your own foot forward. And then other people are going to look around and go, kids doing something good i've got this opportunity for you and that's what we want to instill yeah nice i did mention i worked in a few bars going through university from your you know just your, your typical local with your snitty snitty and chips to um i guess a higher end one beachfront newcastle and regardless of whether i was down at the local or at the high end bar walking into the kitchen it was the same like just it's just seemed chaos like no, I just see the yeah anarchy. I was like, "Where's this order? Where's that order?" I was just thinking, "Gee, this must be such a pressure environment to keep yeah. up with the orders and just the communication, all all of those kind of skills." And we'll get to that to that. 
but it was also a very male dominated kitchen as well the the pubs and the places I did work speaking of struggles did you find it hard working in a male dominated industry Hmm. I think I was fortunate because I grew up with three brothers, older brothers, and if I didn't keep up, they just left me behind. Typical boys, right? Just like they were just on the go doing stuff, being busy, and I just wanted to be a part of that. So I think because I, I, I did not live in a protected bubble growing up, I was getting scraping my knee and, like I said, playing, playing rugby, playing every sport going because I wanted to keep up with my brothers. So stepping into a kitchen um, didn't seem that foreign. Yet now that I'm able to reflect on it, and I have some wisdom behind me through the years of experience, is that I can count the amount of females I work with in, in the kitchen. Over, I've, been in, I've been working in kitchens for over 30 years. I can count them on, on one, one hand, the amount of females in positions of, um, of control of the environment. And I obviously, um, being a female, have worked with so many men, and I have come across some absolute freaking dorks <laughs> that's all i'm gonna say about it yeah, and yeah. you're not just dealing with the misogyny you're dealing with the sexual harassment um you're dealing with just just men tending to not believe you are up for the task because you happen to be a female and the way that i would deal with that is i would cook way better than them and i would control the kitchen way better than them and whether that was my natural competitive um, behavior because I grew up with brothers and I was constantly trying to just keep up with the boys um, super super competitive I just would well like you know what I'll just outcook you I'll just show you up and the worst thing you can do to a male chef is show them up especially if it's his kitchen so I was careful about where I would you know bring it like bring out the skills you know <laughs> because I didn't want to upset anyone but at the same time you can't not be who you are and at my very core I'm a chef and the environment is I, I can't even explain the stress of the environment because it, I would, uh, well, I, I suppose I can. Imagine you go into service and we, we'll call it like say the dinner rush and the dinner rush starts at 6 p.m. and it may go on to 9 p.m. So three hours, but that three hours will go past in the blink of an eye. And I felt like when I would finish a dinner rush and I was doing this six to seven nights a week, I felt like I lost three hours of my life because I can't remember anything apart from just putting the food up, getting the food out. So it was like a blink and then it was 9, 9 p.m. because you're right, you know, you're in that zone. Nine, and yeah. that zone was so stressful. And there was usually things said, feelings were hurt, you know, because <laughs> that's just a kitchen. You know, if you don't, if you don't hold your own, you are gonna get noticed in the first second and then you're gonna get trashed. So you have to like it's being on the footy field, you know, being in any sporting team, if you don't do your job, you let potentially the whole side down and the same thing in a kitchen brigade is that you have to hold your own and you but you have to be very assured of your own skills because if you're busy second guessing what's happening over in the salad section or the or the meat section or the fish section and you're not concerned about what's happening in your section whatever your section is you know that the, the team will very easily the structure of the team will very easily fall down and you'll have a really really bad night so um the male, you know, dominance of the industry is what it is. And I believe for any young female chef getting involved, they just have to be prepared for that because it is what it is. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't look after you when you are a very, very valued part of that team. And you just got to prove your skills like in anything, right? 
what are the tools I guess you used? Is it verbally or is it just purely through action? Like you didn't take notice and you just thought, I'm just going to do my work or is it like we're going one out at the back or um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, how, how did you deal with it? Uh, when I was a young chef, I just kept my head down, you know, and just went into it. And the first time I worked, like when I became like a, 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 an official apprentice in a, in a restaurant, it was in a hotel, a very big, very important, you know, high, high end hotel in Auckland. So it was the largest brigade I'd ever been on. And it's funny, you know, chefs, uh, kitchens are named after the same as armies because we literally are a brigade. And um, because you have to structure it like very much like, like the military, because it has to have a lot of order things happening at the right time. And, you know, the first time I ever walked into this type of environment, um, you know, I was, I was literally treated like the dog's body. They, they treated me so bad. I would, I would cry all the way to work. As soon as I got there, stop crying. Nothing's happening. You know, I'm all good because they would literally treat me like I was the little girl. I was a little girl who couldn't cook and who didn't know anything. And I had to prove myself. And I think about the times that, and, and by the way, while I was doing this, I had a one and a half year old child. I was a teenage mom. So I had my little girl and she was staying with her grandma while, while I was working the night shift in this hotel. And I would just cry the whole time on my way to work, but I would never show any fear. Once I walked in that door, you know, I was just like solid, let's, let's do this, man, it's going down. But if you, you've got to show that you can do it first. If you're doing this, man, you're just, it's just like someone, you know, hitting a tin can. It's just a hollow experience for anyone who's observing me. And everyone was observing me because I'm in this big kitchen. We're in the middle of dinner rush. I'd never done it before in my life. I'm a girl. I'm the only girl. I'm the youngest person in the kitchen. I'm the only indigenous person in this kitchen as well. And I had to stand up and represent me and represent who I am to all these men. Like some of the guys that were just so obnoxious. Like we used to wear these really big, um, you know, the Mickey Mouse chef hats. They look like yeah. that. Yeah. And because we're in a hotel, it's very traditional. We had our necktie on. It was all very, very proper. Um, but the, the, this one chef decided it was a lot of fun to just, he would go past me. And if I'm like bending down, he would set my paper hat on fire. And once time he did that and actually caught fire to the top of my hair and my my hair started burning so he would do stuff like that he would um every time I was bending down he'd be like oh what down there you know like oh here we go just this really offhanded stuff just to put me off but he didn't mm. within six months of walking into that space I was known as a commie which is basically the apprentice within six months I was in charge of dinner service I was running these five guys who are on these other stations and from that point on what can you say <laughs> yeah I know. So, and sometimes we, when we hear about some of those challenges of our guests, you almost have to thank those people as well. Sometimes, like if they don't put you through that, maybe you don't build that resilience. And yep, I have. I hold no animosity to him whatsoever. He probably would have done the same if I was a male chef. But the fact that I was a female just made it more pleasurable for him. Until the fact that I was giving him orders around the kitchen, and it only took me six months, unheard of. <laughs> you know, within that type of um, very regimented kitchen brigade that I was given that opportunity from the executive chef to run the kitchen within six months. I mean, I was straight out of text of, of chef school and I was running the kitchen, but I was just like, I'll never let these guys know that I'm, I, I feel any type of uh, pressure that they're trying to put onto me. I'm just like, man, I'm just like, you know, <laughs> let's do it. So when you achieve that, obviously so young, go through those experience, you say you don't want to show any um, of that type of emotion. I know you said you, you cried, like you know behind on the doors. way to work yeah on the, on the way to work and obviously you put your game face on you still show like that vulnerability 
or do you still sort of don't show any emotion at all? Or, and did you have a breaking point at some page where it just went, oh, over so many years, it's just all come out and I, I, yeah. I don't know where it came from. Did you ever go through that at all? Or was it still like, nah, I'm still the same? No, it's, it's amazing. It's when I step into a kitchen, I become a different person. I can be, you know, I can be outside of the kitchen. I'm just talking about the kitchen in my home right now because you know, we're in lockdown. So the kitchen in my home and I'm chatting with the kids and I'm talking to my hei, you know, and it's just this family time. And then I will walk into the kitchen and I'm a, I'm a different human being because I am so, it's so ingrained in what I do. I can't not do it. I would imagine it's like, you know, it's really hard um, for me to teach my own kids how to cook because I'm so used to, to having to teach apprentices and other people how to cook. You need to learn to pull back a little bit. And I do struggle with that. And I even find, you know, like we've got this, this really awesome audience online now, and I do lots and lots of um, online cooking classes. I've got to remember to be gentle because I'm still that really hardcore chef that just wants to get stuff done. And I nearly swore there and I didn't. And I, and I, I'm, I hope you guys appreciate that. Because that's, that's what it is. You step into the kitchen, man, that apron goes on and you are just in the zone. That's it. You're clicked over. It's like, you know, when the whistle goes, you're in and there's no going back, right? You just, that's, you just become that person that you have trained. And it is like to work with food, you have to train if you love food and you want to do it for your life. If you've got to train to do it. I mean, look at what I've got behind me. Every single book behind me is a cookbook. There is nothing on these shelves. <laughs> that's awesome well we'll get we will get to your cookbooks in a minute but i just wanted i'm curious obviously being us being tongans polynesians our relationship with food what do you think about the the diet and has that i guess influenced your journey in, in what type of education you want to be putting out there who you want to be as a chef yeah it's 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 a tough one you know because we do have a very like food is is the centerpiece of, of so many things that we get together for as whānau, extended whānau for celebrations and mourning. There's always food involved and that food's got to be good. I mean, as a Māori, my gosh, whoever was in charge of the kitchens at the marae during a birthday, a death or a celebration, we wanted to make sure that person knew exactly what they're doing because we wanted the quality food to come because this is how we, we show our love. This is how we celebrate. This is what brings us together. So it's really difficult and to, to not, because I never ever want to downplay the importance of that food has in our cultures. And I love every second of it. You know, I love every second of traditional food, every single second, every new technique that I learn that is something that's been passed down from my grandparents or my aunties or my uncles to me. I treasure that more than any single recipe in any of these books that I have behind me. But at the same time, what I'm acutely aware of is the danger that is involved if we continue to consume the types of foods and the amounts of foods that we are currently doing. It's, it's, it's dangerous for our health and it's also even more dangerous for how we are teaching our children on how we should be eating and how we should be supporting and looking after our bodies. So I, I, I have a bit of a, you know, it's, it's hard for me because I love it so much. And for me, this is what I learned on the marae. That's how I learned. I learned by watching and observing and love everything I was seeing, watching my uncles going diving for kinners and muscles and power and just thinking, this is the best thing ever. And now in the position that I'm in, whereas I teach people how to be healthy, there are so many foods in our traditional diets or even not so traditional diets that are really doing us massive, massive damage. 
how do you go about changing that? Obviously, like when I think of eating healthy, uh, like, you know, like of organic or gluten-free, there's so many barriers involved. I guess probably the big ones financially, like mm-hmm. it does come with a price tag. So, so how do we like help our people or is it, is it education or is it like setting up in Otara, like a, a shop, government funding? Like what is the process to sort of help our people out? Yeah, I think, I think a bit of both. Definitely education is the key um, to help people to understand that there are options that they can have that don't involve, um, you know, too many finances. So it's, it's budget friendly, but also um, it doesn't involve going back to the staples that we've come accustomed to. You know, you've just got to take a walk around. I'm sure your suburbs where you guys grew up, my suburb where I grew up, my, the suburb where Mahe grew up. And there's not a lot of options that involve anything even remotely close to being something that's healthy. Um, you know, sure, there's vegetable markets, like on a Saturday, the Otara flea market, like crazy, crazy popular and famous. Mangere's got a market, I'm sure you guys have them as well, where you can get this fresh produce. But it's the produce that is so limited. It's basically the same staples that we would have. You know, it's things that are really starchy. Um, they're really, really high in carbohydrates and sort of helping people to understand. And this is the one thing that I really love about what Mahe and I are doing now is we're creating a community and what we're noticing is the community is growing in pockets and it's pockets within the Polynesian um, community where it's growing the strongest and the fastest because what they're realizing is yes, it's a different look at, at dealing with food and cooking, but it doesn't, it's not unattainable. If you know how, you can actually do it and still work within your family budgets. In fact, once you really get involved and understand how healthy food works, you realize that you're actually be saving money. You're saving money because it's a lot cheaper than takeaways. Faster than fast food, as we say as well. So, you know, it's just, it's it's definitely an education thing. But there's some amazing, um, there's some ma- amazing non-profits going on, and, and especially where I grew up in Otara, that are, are, are providing really healthy alternatives to what is currently primarily available, you know, in the takeaways and in the, in, in the town centre. Is your family house still the place where uh, they go to auntie's house for like a good feed now or have you had the family sort of like nah I'm not going it's too healthy now I'd rather KFC rather than get fried or anything like that is it still your house to to have a good feed at yeah 100% because that's one of the (laughs) sneaky things that I can do and this is what what being a chef is makes this so much cooler is I can like if you two and your whanau come over and we just we like when we can right we're gonna eat together (laughs) I will not tell you that anything is healthy. I will not tell your kids that anything is healthy. I will still serve you the big pavlovas and the desserts and the puddings and the pies and the cakes and the muffins and the cookies and the barbecue. And you'll eat this food. And I'm like, well, by the way, guys, there was no sugar in there. There was no dairy and there was no gluten. You'll be like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so people know you just come to our house for good feed and it's probably going to be healthy. And I'll probably weigh myself tomorrow and I've lost weight. <laughs> That's pretty common. It happens. So yeah, it's I'm I'm not trying to be sneaky. I've just worked it out. I'm I'm a chef, man. I've been doing this for such a long time. I know how to make any food taste good. And not just taste good, but your eyes want to devour it as well. And when you can do that, you know, it's it's it becomes a lot more palatable for the audience as well. Yeah. Yeah. I might need to send my two-year-old daughter over there. She's not wanting a bar of any of my cooking or my wife's cooking at the moment. I got you, bro. But I did look at your, your book reviews and I guess that that was a common theme was a lot of parents saying, man, I can't believe that my kids ate this and they thought they were eating like junk food and 
I can't believe that they actually enjoyed it. And just to, to see those responses is pretty cool. Yeah, I got chicken nuggets in my recipes. You know, <laughs> we do yeah. Korean fried chicken. We do we do all the all the types of food that we associate with being um, naughty or being just kind of simple and you know a little bit a little bit decadent. And we create beautiful versions. My husband's favorite favorite food in the whole world is apple crumble. And um, I can make a healthy apple crumble that he reckons tastes better than the ones that you would normally get that has all the fat and all the sugar and all the gluten in it. He loves my apple crumble. So my, my goal has always been to recreate dishes that we are very familiar with. So things that our kids would know mm. so that we can just, you know, just it's just, a, it's just a different way of looking at it. It's a different way of understanding how food works. And, you know, now that, that I've been cooking this healthy food and it's been sort of nearly, nearly four years, so three and a half years that I've been on this health kick. Prior to that, I was just all about the flavor. Didn't realize it was doing massive damage to my body. But now I'm about the flavor and, and the actual health benefits of food as well. Flavor still always first. That always, that trumps everything because at my core, I am a chef. And I want to eat food that makes me just, takes me to another place. But I want to look after my body and my brain at the same time. Yeah. I guess speaking about that, uh, looking after your body, I know you've, you've been open in terms of sharing your, your weight loss journey and talking about how that's contributed to the type of foods and recipes and things that you're using now. You mentioned in one interview that I heard you were going through a pretty dark time where, you know, you, you weren't leaving the house, you weren't leaving the room at some point uh and it didn't it wasn't until someone said you've got an interview on tv that you're like all of a sudden oh i'm gonna just had an unstable connection oh okay are we good are we still good? yep yep we're are good we now yeah um yeah so uh about about sort of three and a half years ago i had a a, a meltdown um you could say i hit rock bottom um i don't at the time know it was rock bottom but now looking back it, it was pretty down there um, so I'd written my first cookbook. This was in 2018. And um, as you do, it was with a traditional publisher. Um, and the publisher sort of contacted me and said, look, you're going to have to go on TV. I'm going to put you on the national, national TV show on, in Australia and, you know, and cook something out of your book. And I was just like, ah, you know, couldn't believe it. Um, and I couldn't believe it because I had, was, was at the biggest I'd ever been in my life. I had previous to that to, to that phone call saying I had to go on TV. I'd spent probably four years in my room, um, becoming a recluse. I was I was thirty five kilos heavier than what you see now. I was um, clinically depressed. I was um, suffering from multiple addictions, um, addicted to alcohol, addicted to food, and. I was in a place where I'd never been before. You know, I had this beautiful life. Don't get me wrong, man. I've got this husband who adores me. I've got these amazing kids. You know, we were living in this beautiful house on the water. I had this incredible job. You know, I was a VIP chef for Google. Like I was doing some crazy stuff in my life, but I wasn't happy. I was not happy. I hated my life. And suddenly they were saying to me, look, no, you're going to have to go on TV. And I was like, I can't look like this and go in front of TV and tell them how to cook because who's going to want to buy my book looking at me because I'm a mess I'm a you know I'm just I'm not I'm not a, I'm a sad sad and unfortunate person so you know being in that downward spiral that I was in and I had been in it for a couple of years I I knew I had to lose weight because I was pre-diabetic for a start which was really scary um, 
Um, I was, you know, suffering through depression and anxiety and fatigue, chronic, chronic fatigue. Couldn't even get my head off the pillow some mornings. And I knew I had to, something had to change. And there was this opportunity that I so desperately wanted and then suddenly so desperately did not want. Like, oh my God, no, this is not the time. Can we do it like in a year's time? And they're like, no, you're going to be on TV in six weeks. And I was like, holy crap, I got six weeks to lose, you know, 30 kilos. Of course, completely unrealistic. But I started to do what I'm really good at doing, which is reading <laughs> and researching and looking at different ways that I wanted to like fast track this weight loss that I wanted to do this amazing weight loss and I kept on coming back to this idea of gut health and it kept on popping up everywhere there was a Jenny Craig's and Weight Watchers and you know all these fad diets that you hear everywhere but there was this really solid research band that I was seeing and I do look at proper scientific research papers when I am researching anything and it kept on coming back to this idea of gut health and how important having a healthy gut microbiome is when it comes to long-term health and weight loss so I started eating this sort of gut health lifestyle which is basically got rid of all the sugar from my diet and I'm talking about honey maple syrup you know added sugars white sugar brown sugar raw sugar organic sugar doesn't matter got rid of all the sugars in my diet the next thing I did is when I was looking at it, they said, look, you should um, also very much limit the amount of gluten you have in your diet and, and wheat flour. So I got, anything, I got rid of anything that had white flour. So pasta, I got rid of bread. Whoa, very hard for us Polynesians oh. to get rid of bread. It's yeah. like, this is not going to work. It did, trust me. Yeah. Put a pin in that, we'll come back to the bread thing. Oh. So I got rid of anything with white flour, crackers, cookies, muffins, pastas, bagels, you know, you name it. If it had white flour in it, I eliminated it from my diet. And I also was reading a lot of research about how um, dairy can be very um, inflammatory to our gut as well. So I got rid of commercial dairy, basically. And I used to drink a lot of milk, eat a lot of yogurt, ice cream and all that, got rid of all that stuff. And just started to create foods that were more whole food orientated. So I was, you know, creating a meals. And for me, it was just like, I'm not going to look at the whole picture, which is what I need to lead 30 kilos. I need to lose 30 kilos in like a month. I'll just focus on eating the next meal, make that healthy. So I just looked at the next meal. I'm going to make that healthy. I'm a chef. I know how to make food delicious. So yes, I was eliminating a big section of what I was eating, but let's be honest, that tend to be processed food because I was lazy because I was fatigued and overweight got rid of the processed food I started to cook my own food I'm a chef I can do this but I made it so simple because I had a busy lifestyle I had a busy family I had to look after and within um, one month of me getting rid of those elements my my ideal was I would lose 10 kilos before I went on tv I ended up losing 12 kilos in um, in five weeks and um, it was a really busy time and I was writing my second cookbook at the same time so it was all sort of busy and I was so busy that I actually ended up going on television with my big chef's jacket on before I'd lost weight. So no one could tell that I'd lost all this weight, but I did not care. I was just like, I've lost 12 kilos. It was, it was obviously life-changing. It was completely and utterly transformative that I could do it. I'd worked something out and I could do it. Well, I've cooked me a feed once and I lost seven kilos in that one night. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> You thought you could have medium rare chicken, but anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Chicken carpaccio, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I guess so. When you talk about that, was it purely um, 
you know, we talk about that spiral. Was it purely weight only or was there stuff, do you think, uh, that sort of triggered that leading into this point? We talk about midlife or, or 40s. Um, yeah. and, and was the weight loss just sort of like that, I guess, the byproduct of um, anything else that was happening in your life or was it just purely that? So what I've learned now, because I've now studied to, um, I'm now a nutritionist. So I've gone and got, you know, formally qualified because I'm so fascinated by how the body actually works and how food, you know, food is medicine you know food is information i did not know this at the time so one of the things that i've learned now that it's all making so much sense when i can when i think back about where i was and the place that i was in this spiral this like this it was literally like this tornado just taking me in and there was nothing i could do to get out and what i know now about food is that you know when we are consuming a diet that's non-supportive so it's food that is not providing us with nutrition, basically. And unfortunately, that is a lot of the food that you find in the supermarket aisles. So you walk down any supermarket aisle, 80 to 90% of the food that you find in packets, jars, tins, and bottles is going to have some type of added sugar to it. They add sugar because sugar um, extends the shelf life, and it also makes things more palatable, and it keeps us addicted because sugar is a drug. And it lights up the same pathways in your brain that class A drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine do. It's the same pathways. So sugar is a drug. And I was addicted to this drug and many other drugs as well. And so what I've learned now by you know, the, the, the wisdom of hindsight is that if you're eating a diet that's not supporting your health, and unfortunately, sadly, for our Polynesian brothers and sisters, this is the majority as opposed to the minority of people are eating a diet that doesn't support their health. Your health will suffer. Firstly, you'll probably see, see um, weight gain or obesity. And from obesity, you'll also see, you know, chronic diet related conditions like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, heart disease, type two diabetes. Um, but it also, you know, if you, if you extend it out even further, we're talking about things um, that affect our brain because what we, affect, uh, what we eat directly affects our brain because there's hormones that are either able to be utilized by the body or they're being held back. And food can hold back hormones. Like you've heard of serotonin, right? Which is like our happy, our happy hormone. Ninety percent of serotonin that makes us happy is created in our gut. So if you're eating a diet that is not um, that is not giving you good gut health, so it's literally like creating toxic gunge that's covering your gut. Your ability for your body to produce serotonin is almost non-existent. So my depression, I know this now, was directly linked to my bad diet, yeah. almost within days, definitely within a week of me cleaning up my diet, I, was, I just found myself smiling more. I was just happier. And as I was saying, the more research I do into this, the more I've realized it was my diet that was holding me back, was causing me to literally become a recluse in my room. Didn't want anyone to see me. Didn't want anyone, like, you know, I, I was hiding not just from the world, I was hiding from my own family. Because I was just like, this is not, oh, I'm just in this really dark place. And my depression is non-existent. I haven't ever taken any, any drugs for that. I've been able to manage that through my diet. I know for some people, they do need you know, medication and doctor's um, support. But for me personally, I was able to come to a place where I realized that in order to keep my mental health solid, I have to look after my diet. It's not just about how much physical movement I can do, it's, but it also includes, you know, 
how whether I feel energy or not, whether I'm fatigued or I'm feeling tired, but also how much sleep I get. When my diet's good, I get good sleep. Getting good sleep means your entire day is better the next day. So everything's interconnected so strongly. That's so powerful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You, you do do a lot of work around the social media space and mm -hmm. I know you've built up quite a, a really large audience. Part of your mentorship is also in that space as well. And I guess looking at society expectations around body image and food and how that develops our relationship with food, mm -hmm. what are some of the key things that you see from social media? How does that influence our food choices? And how, can we, how are you yeah. using that in a positive way? I guess. Oh, I'm glad you said positive way because I instantly thought of the negative ways that, um, <laughs> that food can impact people's choices. Um, one of the things about social media that, that is less than ideal is that social media can be a trigger for some people when it comes to certain foods. Um, you know, they may, um, and it may not just be the content that you're absorbing from social media. It just means that you're sitting down and you're in front of your computer, so you've got some snacks. You know, that's the trigger. So there's all these triggers, um, these, these not so good triggers that um, social media has definitely shone a very strong light on when it comes to food. And of course, body image as well. Um, you know, I still, I'm, I'm on all the platforms. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. So we're on all the platforms. And I, but I'm, I'm acutely aware of how um, these platforms can have quite negative uh, effects for people. So I'm very honest about my journey on these social media platforms. I don't paint this as a picture like, I can do it, anyone can do it, because I know it's everyone has their own struggles. Everyone comes from different backgrounds. Everyone has financial um, you know, um, conditions that they need to work on and family conditions and work. And there's just so many things that go into making that person who they are. So I'm not gonna, you know, go out there and say my life is rosy when in fact every single day, you know, I've I've I lost that that 30 initial 30, 35 kilos in, in five and a half months and I've kept it off for you know nearly four years. So I'm not gonna say that's easy because every day I am still maintaining my health. It's not like you get to a point, it's all over, happy days, I can go and party. No, no, no. Every single day, I have to continue to learn and continue to move forward. So there is that negative side. But of course, when it comes to social media, there's always the opportunity to connect with people in a very positive way. So the community, communities that we have developed um, are very inclusive for a start like you know whether you're in like we have people who are part of our community who are in their 80s which is so beautiful and then we have people that are in their uh, late teens as well so we have this really broad spectrum we have people from all over the planet all different you know walks of life and different demographics so we're very inclusive and the way that I always think about me and Mahay talk about this a lot is we treat social media as Polynesians like we're a we community there is no I in our community like when I am doing good, I want to pull you all up with me. I want to, I want to help you to get to a point, whatever that point is. If it's similar to mine, then I'm here to help you. As opposed to this is all about me, this is all about me. No, it's not. This is about the community that we've created. And they keep me strong and they keep me accountable. And in return, I want to give them whatever it is that I can give them to help them on their journey as well. And I believe that's a very Polynesian way of looking at the world, you know, mm. that we are a community. We are all about the we. We unite each other. Yeah. And I guess we've just got a few more questions and some who are sent through through Instagram. But I guess you're speaking of giving, you've got your new book that's just come out. I'll show you. 
Yes, please. <laughs> I just happen to have a copy <laughs> right here. <laughs> Treat yourself healthy. And that's that's the new book, and speak. it's so new. This is the only copy currently in Australia. This is the author's copy. Um, it is over two hundred. So this is my sixth cookbook, by the way. And I wrote my first cookbook in 2008. So I think I'm a pretty prolific cookbook writer at this stage. <laughs> Number six. That's awesome. I think I am. I think I am. Yeah. Yeah. 200 Speaks. recipes. And they're all sugar-free, gluten-free, and dairy-free. In, in that book, do you, are there like, um, for the ingredients and stuff, do you like uh, say where you can get these from? Like, or like are they all in, in every everyday supermarket as well? I know you said 90% rubbish, but yeah. um, can you just get like all your recipes from or ingredients from like a supermarket? 100%. So um, I always try and create recipes. I always think when I when I sit down to write a recipe, I look at the method for a start. Obviously, it's got to be delicious. I test it. I look at the method. I think like, could my auntie up north in Karatu, could she actually create this in her kitchen? Chances are she's only got two burners that work on her cooktop, you know, so she's a bit limited. Could she make it? It has to be easy and also has to be accessible. So always, I always maintain that. I don't like, I don't write cookbooks for chefs, you know, where it takes, you know, four days yeah, <laughs> and you need 55 ingredients. I try and keep things really, really accessible. So a lot of the ingredients you can buy for us in Australia, Aldi, favorite store in the whole world, you can buy it at Aldi or you can buy them at Coles or Woolies, you know, whatever. Um, for the for the the, the um, few products that you need to source outside of the supermarket, then I always suggest to people go online. Man, it's your cheapest option. Go online, get it delivered to your door. Um, it's the best way to do it. So there's a few in there, but the majority of them is just like the stuff that you can get in the supermarket. Beauty. Yeah, good. So just a few questions that got sent through. Um, if you could invite three people to dinner, who would they be and why? Mm. Well, right now, that's really easy. Can I invite four? Just four. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah that's, that's my mum and dad and Mahi's mum and dad because we haven't seen mm. them. I haven't seen my parents for two years now. Um, obviously, they're just they in do. New Zealand. Mahi's mum and dad are in New Zealand too. So I would invite those four human beings just to see them so the kids can see them too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what is one spice tool or ingredient that you couldn't go without? Mm. Oh, that's tough that I couldn't go without. Um, I have to say salt. I have to say salt. And um, the reason why is that, I mean, salt is an electrolyte that our body requires, sodium, right? So it's really necessary that we balance the amount of sodium in our body. And um, I know for some people, they're told to lower their salt content if they've got high cholesterol, but there's really good quality salts out there on the market. If you just spend just a little bit more, like I don't use table salt, I use nice mineral salt, but I still buy it at Coles or buy it at, I buy it at Woolies, but it's a mineral salt. And the reason why you use a mineral salt as opposed to a table salt, which is normally iodized, is a mineral salt has a few more nutrients and those nutrients are literally designed to balance the water table in your body. So if you've got too, drinking too much fluid, you'll obviously eliminate it. If you're not got enough fluid, those, um, those minerals help to balance out that fluid content in your body as well. So I would say, I would say salt and, and for that reason, but also it makes food taste good. <laughs> like I couldn't imagine like not having just that little sprinkle of salt, just on a fresh, like on a ripe tomato, you know? beautiful and then you just sprinkle a little bit of salt over it and it transforms 
something as humble as a tomato goes to a whole new level. So that would be, I think I could not live without salt. In fact, I often say, if, if a doctor was to say to me, you need to lower your salt con content, we wouldn't be friends anymore. I'd just go find another doctor. <laughs> Out of all the foods you mentioned to put salt on, I did not expect tomato. Like I was like, just uh, do it. Just like do seriously, it. get a, get a cherry like tomato, apple. cut it in half. Now eat the first half without salt. Yep. experience it you know have a think about it if it's ripe it's probably quite nice now take that second half and just a little bit of mineral salt like a himalayan salt mineral in salt, australia yeah. there's a salt called murray river pink salt which is awesome you don't have to go and get you know molten salt from from the uk you can get a really good one here in australia and just a sprinkle and eat that tomato it is a completely different eating experience uh, all right i'll try it then <laughs> <laughs> you've sold me on it so i'll do it <laughs> um this one's from sam's wife actually if you were stuck on an island and you could only eat one type of food what would it be i shouldn't say salt but i probably would <laughs> right next yeah. to the ocean okay if i'm stuck yeah. on an island i could only eat one type of food chances are that would be something from the ocean because i am maori and we love everything from the ocean so i would probably say i would say power would be my food of choice oh. Because it's pretty awesome. Yeah, pretty flavorsome. Nice. I can get pearls possibly and shells that I can grind <laughs> down and sell as jewelry. Yeah. I'm thinking the box here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to the end, but I guess what's next for Bridget Foliaki Davis? Well, we're about to get into like this book is, as I was saying, the Treat Yourself Healthy is. Um, is only days away from being accessible from the ports. COVID has delayed the release of the book. So we're gonna get through that. We also have a, um, a program that we operate um, every month we run a program. We've had thousands and thousands of people go through this program. It's a 28 day like boost camp that we do all online or virtual. I give you the recipes, I give you the meals. Um, so we're, we're gonna be doing more boost camps really, really soon. But you know, we've just got, we just wanna to continue to grow this amazing community that we have um you know and keep it keep it keep on entertaining them but also inspiring them to um you know go for their goals whatever their goals may be maybe it's health gain maybe it's weight loss whatever their goals are we want to inspire them yeah well i've really enjoyed this chat and i guess want to thank you for being that person that maybe you didn't have who you weren't able to see and aspire to being and i guess for I'm a father of a daughter and I think it's really awesome to see strong women who are chasing their dreams and pursuing that and, you know, ho holding your ground. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And, and really she wants being... to be a chef, send her my way. <laughs> yeah, done. <laughs> and um, look, yeah, I'll be getting that Treat Yourself Healthy book and trying to get my daughter onto some meals because she's, yeah, not liking my cooking at the moment. <laughs> I got you, babe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Now, just from myself, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I said, like, when we were, were doing a bit of research, um, I stopped reading at Oprah. Um, <laughs> oh, actually, on that, uh, what eggs did you cook? Was it eggs that you cooked it? Oh, so my husband's favourite food in the entire world is scrambled eggs. And when we first moved to Australia 13 years ago, I used to work for a very famous chef. And I ran his uh, restaurants in Sydney. 
and he had one in Darlinghurst called Bill's and Bill's is famous for its scrambled eggs. So Oprah came into Bill's. Bill was currently out of the country. So I cooked eggs for Oprah and was on the Oprah show, which was really exciting. I made her scrambled eggs. By the way, my scrambled eggs, as my husband says, he's a little bit biased, but he says they're the best eggs in the world. Not only can you come and eat my eggs, I'll teach you how to make them. They are phenomenal. I can, I can, like attest, I can attest to that because when I was living in Japan, um, they've got Bill's, Bill's restaurants. Yeah. So yep. we would always hunt it down in Fukuoka when I was there, um, down in Motesando. And uh, yeah, we'd always go there because I was saying to AK just before that that's where we got our scrambled eggs and bacon coffee fix. That's it. That's it. So scrambled yeah. eggs was what I cooked for Oprah and uh, thumbs up all around. They're pretty yeah, happy. She, she pretty yeah. 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 Pretty impressed. Really. It was pretty uh, cool. Well, <laughs> just so there, yeah, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate Thanks, it. And um, hopefully, yeah, we can catch up at some time for a feed. <laughs> Thanks guys. Thank you. What's up, guys? Thanks again for listening. Something that me and Wax will start to do now is just wrap up the episodes and share a few takeaways. Waxley, over to you, mate. What was something that you took away from this episode with Bridget? Mate, there was, there was a few few bits of gold in there that I really took away from. Probably just around nutrition as a whole. I guess when she started doing it for health, I guess my background in terms of professional footy, I, that's probably one area I really struggled with because like I, I just relied so heavily on trying to train um, more to be healthier rather than focusing what actually went into my guts. Uh, yeah, mate, I, I battled with that, thinking that, yeah, training and, and doing that was going to help me become a professional. Uh, on, but then the moments when I did get that right, when I looked after what I was eating, I noticed a big difference in the energy and sort of mood that you put yourself in. So that, that was that was cool listening to her talk about that, not from a sporting point of view, but from just an overall health point of view. So we, we, which was cool. And um, I, I guess the, the other thing was just around um, just her, just her bravery, just not, not being a victim to, I guess, all of her circumstances that she came across. Like, um, I know we, we only got to spend sort of, a, I guess, an hour in her story, but just what I got from that is just the fact that uh, she, she didn't come off as playing any type of victim. And, and some of those, mate, some of those bloody stories she was talking about in the kitchen with, with the males, um, I guess doing those things, you know, like lighting a hat on fire, her hairs getting on fire, you know, bending over to pick up something, and the, and the bloke says, "Why are you down there?" You know, just shit like that, where you'd go, like, as blokes, you know, sometimes we think we're maybe being funny or or whatever, but really, when you hear it from the like from a woman's perspective like that, you go, "Geez, we need a bloody, we need to change our behaviours there." Um, towards women you know it's just it was a cool chat to just learn it was just sort of there was just so many bits there just around food around just um, work ethic and just uh, I guess treatment of women yeah nice yeah and I, I really enjoyed the chat as well in terms of understanding gut health that was a big one understanding that 90% of you know our serotonin which is what makes us happy is created in our gut and obviously the kind of foods that we eat really impacts our ability to create that serotonin. I think from a parenting perspective, I really respect how she's gone about trying to develop some really good habits and values within her kids. Uh, I think she's brought that, you mentioned that she's brought that chef mentality into everything that she expects them to do. And I think something cool that will be beneficial for some people who may be struggling with food choices. I know even during lockdown, my food choices have been quite poor. 
So just her advice around focus on the next meal, don't focus too far down the track and really break it down. Just how can I make my next meal healthy? So some great advice there. I thought it was inspirational and educational at the same time, but thanks again for joining us. Please make sure you follow us on our socials at Naked Your Apparel, both on Instagram and on Facebook. And please make sure you leave a review on Apple and let us know what you think of the episode. So thanks, guys. Sweet. Laters.